Let's pray together. Jesus, you're all we need, and yet we don't grasp that truth. I hope you help us to, to grasp it even more firmly today. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. When my son was in elementary school, teachers complained about he was restless in class, he didn't pay attention and stuff, and so we took him to see if he had attention deficit disorder. Now, this was back in the days when teachers wanted the, the kids to sit quietly in class and, and be little girls, all of them, okay? Sorry, teachers, I'm going to annoy you this morning because back then, we, we, we decided that the way to control boys was to fill them with drugs and turn them into these passive little lugs that would sit on the chair. Instead of finding another way to educate them, we instead pumped get, uh, drugs into them to keep them quiet. And I confess, I regret to this day that I allowed them to do that to my son. But anyway, I took him to be tested by a psychologist to see if he had attention deficit disorder. Disorder. It's a difference. It's not a disorder, okay? It's just different. They learn differently. That's not my sermon. Hang on, move on, Raymond. <laughs> so, attention deficit disorder. So, the psychologist was testing him and concluded, unfortunately, that he did have ADD. But while I was listening to him doing the tests, I'm sitting there thinking, huh, huh. So, when he was done, I said, would you test me to see if I was ADD? So, he took me through the test and he said, yeah. You probably were. By the way, I still am, okay? But he took me through the tests to see if I was an ADD kid because I could remember sitting in class going out of my mind, having to sit through this long class, looking out the window, wanting to be anywhere, but sitting in the classroom. But discovered that, yeah, I did have a... a he said, but you, you had ADD probably, but you developed the coping skills to be able to handle it so that later on in life you've, you've, you've learned how to, to live with it, to figure it out. Now, here's some interesting things, though, that I dis did discover about the attention deficit difference. And that is that, uh, I, they were t and it helped me to understand, there were times I would tell Ryan, okay, Ryan, go upstairs, put on your pajamas, and get into bed. And my poor little boy would remember just go upstairs. And on his way up the stairs, he would completely blank out on what else he was supposed to be doing, and he would find something more interesting to do. And once he got up there, and so I would go upstairs and get annoyed. I told you to put on your pajamas. And he'd look at me like, you did? Well, it was gone. All he remembered was step one, go upstairs. And he would do that. But knowing that that's part of, of attention deficit difference helped me enormously to understand. Don't give him a string of commands. Give him just one and then follow up with another one. By the way, this attention deficit disorder difference Kids like that in an agrarian society or in a hunter-gatherer society, they're the kings. They're the ones who've got the creativity. They're the ones who can think outside the box, who can see answers. It was one of the things I've noticed, and you'll notice still that in meetings, I would be able to see the answer while people are still trying to define the problem. And that's one of the things with thinking differently like this. You jump to the solution. And you have to sit there for the next hour while everybody inches their way to the solution and gets to there. So I did discover that I had ADD. But then over the years, I've discovered that I've got something else. And it's something that most of us suffer from. It's called BADD, Biblical Attention Deficit <laughs> Disorder. You see, God tells us to do something, and we may or may not hear him at all. 
But even if we hear him, we have the habit of walking away and not doing what he told us to do. But here's the interesting factor. Had the first century Christians had B-A-D-D as bad as we have it, the world would not have changed. But they were different. It was all fresh. It was all new. And as they were being taught and as they were growing, they began to change the world. I just want to remind you of this. A.D. 35, day of Pentecost, Jesus has risen, gone to heaven. There were 211 believers about. That day, there were 3,211, just like that. Apostle Peter preached the gospel, picked up the Old Testament, picked up the, the story about Jesus, put him together, and people were saved because they knew he'd come back from the dead. By the end of that first century, there was between seven and 10,000 Christians. Now listen, remember this. If you became a Christian in those days, the chances are you would be persecuted. Count on it. You're going to suffer if you become a Christian. And many of them were being killed once they became Christians. And you go, who would do that? Who would choose to become a follower of a man named Jesus knowing that it's going to bring trouble into your life and will put your life in jeopardy? But that gospel, that message of you can live beyond the grave, you can live and be a child of God if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You can live and have the Spirit of God living in you. Your life will change from the inside out. It was so compelling because they could see it happening. We'll talk about it more in a little bit. By the second century, there was estimated there were 200,000 believers spread throughout now the Mediterranean world. By the year 380, there were somewhere between 5 and 6 million Christians in the Roman Empire. So many that at that time, the emperor decided he needed to declare Christianity the state religion because there were so many people who were now followers of this man, Jesus. I'm not sure that Constantine himself was converted. It didn't matter. He just realized there's this flood that's happening that's taking over our world. Now, the interesting thing is it spread because of the gospel. And if you open your Bibles to James chapter 1, I want to pick up with, with what we studied last week just real quickly because we need to see this moving on from there. And what James says is that the Word of God births those who believe in Jesus to become the pinnacle of God's creation. God spent six days creating the world, and He stopped creating until after the resurrection of Jesus. And when, after the resurrection of Jesus, people started to believe in Him, God started His creative work again. A new creation came into existence. Human beings who are now children of God Human beings who have the Spirit of God inside of them. Human beings who are going to live forever in the new world. So God started this new creation. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're part of that new creation. James says this, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. First fruits means cream of the crop. This is not trying to pump you up and make you feel good. It's true. Once you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you're the cream of the crop. You're the first fruits of what God is doing in the world, and that's what he's doing right now, the most significant and important thing he's doing in the entire world. But notice that statement. He, gave, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. There's a principle in Bible study, and the principle is this. When you study a passage, you ask yourself a question, what did this mean to the very first people who ever read it? You with me there? Before you jump to what does this mean for me, you have to try and figure out what did this mean to the very first people who ever 
read this. James is writing, as far as we know, the very first letter to the, the new believers. Somewhere around about the year 50, AD 50, okay? This is the first letter going out. And as they see these words, word of truth, what was in their minds? It's very simple. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is God who became a man. Who died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins, was buried rose again, ascended into heaven, and offers the gift of eternal life to those who believe in him. That, when they heard word of truth, that's what they would think. We're going to expand on it because now we've got more that's come along. But first of all, when he said that, he was talking about the gospel. So I'm going to use this little lamp, if you don't mind, to represent the gospel. That simple, simple message that began to spread through the world. And as it spread, thousands of people were being saved. It's the power, Paul says, of salvation. The gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. And that's what's been happening throughout the centuries. The gospel is the core of the Bible. It's the essential part to the scriptures. Interesting, notice that he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Notice that the truth was external to them. And then the truth was brought to them and they believed and were transformed. That's still true today. God created us in his own image so that we have a brain. We can think. And when he calls us to faith, he never calls us to take a blind leap. He always calls us to take a rationally thought out step of faith. You guys there with me? He doesn't want a blind leap. That's the last thing in the world God ever wants us to do. He always wants us to take a rational, carefully thought out step with him. And so the word of truth came to them externally. What's interesting, we just watched a guy, um, Timothy Keller, just did a whole presentation on this, and it's mind-blowing. You see, it used to be in most cultures that truth is out there, and I go to find truth. That's not true in our culture anymore. Our culture now believes a stupid thing that, no, the truth is in me. I am the ultimate source of truth. This week, this very week, they discovered that it's safe for you to eat red meat. They've been telling us it's not safe. You shouldn't eat red meat. Don't eat red meat. This week, they suddenly discovered by doing research, it's, if we can't decide whether it's good to eat red meat or not, how in the heck can we think, I know all the answers. The truth is in me because I can decide why we're here, where we came from. That's what our culture is now that the truth now resides in me. By the way, as soon as I read that, I went and had a steak. <laughs> like freedom. Of course, I didn't read the article too closely because it probably does have warnings, but still. <laughs> All right, so he gave to give, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Those very first people who read that, what he was describing was the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. In a few verses' time, he's going to talk about the, 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 the law that gives us freedom, the perfect law that gives us freedom, the completed law that gives us freedom. Now, as he said that, they would understand one more different thing. This is a Hebrew Bible, by the way. This is Hebrew Old Testament. It's all Hebrew. Okay. When he spoke about the perfect law that gives freedom, he was describing the Old Testament plus the gospel. Without the gospel, the Old Testament couldn't free us. With the gospel, we were liberated. With the gospel, now the Old Testament made sense. All of it was pointing toward Jesus Christ. 
The whole sacrificial system, for example, pointed to Jesus Christ. And now they could begin, as they, as, as they began to go forward, they were Jewish people, by the way, who therefore knew a lot of the scriptures from having heard them read. And now, as followers, they were beginning to put the pieces together, like, just like Peter did on the day of Pentecost, when he reached into the Old Testament and described what the Old Testament said about the coming King, Messiah, and he added that to the life of Jesus Christ, and the gospel popped. The perfect law that gives freedom is, the, the, is when you took the Old Testament scriptures and you added the gospel to it, all of a sudden, you found that you were liberated. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are liberated from the penalty for sin, which is hell. We're all born condemned to hell. Sorry, that's the way it is. All human beings are born condemned to hell. And we would choose to continue on a road to hell if God did not step in to try and stop us. Okay? We choose hell. And that's where we would spend eternity. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you're liberated from condemnation to hell. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So you with me there? But... We're also liberated, and this is very important to listen to because it applies to what we're going to study. We're liberated from the power of sin. And we're liberated to be able to now become slaves to righteousness. Paul talks about this in Romans 5, 6, and 7. He says, the thing you need to understand, that the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're liberated. Not just from the penalty for sin, but the power of sin as well. So that when God tells you and me to do something, we can't go... I can't do it. He says, yes, you can. I can't do it. Yes, you can. How am I liberated? You're free. You can say no to sin and yes to righteousness, plus he's put the Holy Spirit inside of us. By the way, the Holy Spirit doesn't show up here because the Holy Spirit is writing this. And he's in other passages of Scripture. But right now, what the Spirit of God wants us to do is focus on the Word of God. So, are you, are you guys awake and with me there? When he talks about the perfect law that gives freedom, he's talking about the Old Testament plus the gospel. Without the gospel, they, it never would have liberated them. All, all the Ten Commandments, for example, tell us is we're lost and there's nothing we can do about it. But the gospel says we can do something about it by believing in Jesus because he took the punishment for, for, for what the law required. Okay, you with me there? Cool. This is such good stuff, believe me. But then... James does something that no other religion did. No religion did this, and it was this. He summoned them to live moral, ethical lives. In those days, your religion didn't care how you lived. As long as you gave the gods their, their due, they didn't have any demands on you morally. They had no demands on you in terms of your spiritual life. The, just as long as you came and you worshipped them, and by the way, they worshipped their gods because they were terrified of them, not because they loved them. They worshipped their gods because they were scared if they didn't worship them, that God would punish them somehow and get even with them. All their gods were, by the way, were man-created images of ourselves. You try and create a god. That god will just be a worse version of you, a bully version of you. And that's what they were creating all the time. And none of those religions, none of those, those, those gods they worshipped made ethical demands on them at all. Live as you want to. As long as you pay me, you can live as you want to. James says this, the word of God summons us to live on the highest moral plane. You with me there? The word of God calls on those who are followers of Jesus Christ that we're to live as if Jesus is living inside of us, which he is. He says this, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. 
Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Now, he's going to come back twice more in this book to speak about the damage we do with our mouths. And in the, con in the context of life back in those days, life was very hostile. People were always looking out for number one. Doesn't sound like a culture I might know, but still. They were always looking out for number one. And so there was an enormous amount of hostility within their, their culture. Our culture is moving in this direction. Have you noticed how polarized we're becoming? That there, it used to be it's not wise to talk about politics in, 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 a, in a party or something like that. Now it's not only wise, but you will be attacked immediately if you dare to disagree with other people. They'll call you all kinds of names. And they'll become righteously angry that you dare believe something different than I know is absolute truth. And you say, Raymond, you're exaggerating. Just try it. Just try it. Okay? If you're a Republican, go find a group of Democrats and sit down with them and tell them, let me tell you. If you're a Democrat, go sit down with a group of Republicans and tell them, let me tell you. And what you will find is, we are living in a culture that's becoming more and more hostile all the time. That's why we need to hear what James is saying. Remember, they changed the world. The interesting thing about them is they discovered that one of the marks of these people is the way they were able to love one another. It was off the charts in terms of the cultures they encountered with them. They was like, what does this? Why would you be doing this? They discovered that the Christians in those days were not like the rest of the culture. The rest of the culture, if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You do something wrong to me, I'm going to sue you. You do something wrong to me, I will get even. That's how it was. It was tit for tat all the time in their culture. And they discovered something bizarre about the Christians. They weren't like that. You could do something against them, and they would not immediately retaliate. They did use the Lord to protect themselves, but they didn't do it with hostile ways. There was, there was a low level of hostility. And we read this, and we're going, oh, yeah, right. Come on. We're going to be quick to listen. Most of us are really quick to, to talk. We're not quick to listen. We don't even know how to listen often and become angry. And he says, understand, human anger does not produce God's righteousness. Keep this in mind. We're going to talk about politics in a little while. Not today, but in a little while. And understand this, that many of us get so angry as if, ah, my view has to win because I am righteous. God's in control, okay? Do you think God is completely powerless when it comes to politics and God's going, oh, oh, dear Lord, oh, my gosh, oh, we're losing control. No, he's in control. Believe me. So we'll talk about how we should be relating to politics. But understand this, that human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. He doesn't want us to become people who walk around with our signs and yell and scream and stand on street corners and scream. You're not going to accomplish anything at all. They changed the world. They changed it differently. Ugh. And then he says, those who consider themselves religious and do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. First generation Christians, he's telling them, watch what you do with your mouth. Control your tongue. There's a demon that lives in your dentures. There's a terrorist that lives in your teeth. There is something in here that can do all kinds of damage. And he says, you want to be somebody who's known as belonging to God? Control your tongue. It's interesting. You're going to go, Raymond, you're making this up twice more. He's going to come back to the subject. It was a big issue in those days. Not ours. We never gossip. 
We never complain. We never get angry. We'll come back to it. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Do you remember who the orphans were that he's talking about? In those days, if a father didn't want a child his wife gave birth to, they would take the child and they would throw it on the city dump. To die there from exposure or to die there at, at, uh, from the animals that would be at the city dump or to be taken by somebody and turned into a slave. So the orphans that he's talking about here were those who were orphaned in the normal way, but also children who were just discarded. They would just throw them away because they were not convenient. I can't imagine a culture that would kill babies just because they're inconvenient. You say, Raymond, you're getting close to politics here. Of course I am. When we deal with issues in this country and in this world and in our lives right now, there are some issues that are moral. They're not political. We call them political because we want to shut up those who, who dare talk about them. But abortion is not a political issue. It is a moral issue. 65 million children have been murdered since Roe v. Wade came into existence. God says religion that is our Father accepts as pure and faultless is to look after the preborn as well as the born, to look after them. And they did. What was astonishing is the Roman Empire, first century, discarded babies. Roman, century, Roman culture, third century, it stopped. Why did it stop? Because the Christians modeled it. What Christians would do is they would go to the city dump and rescue those babies. And they would take them into their households and raise them. Astonishing thing that they did. Looked after widows. Widows were cast apart. Once, you, once your husband died, you were destitute. There was no way you could go get a job. There were no jobs available in those days for, for widows. The church started to take care of the widows and, and be concerned for them. One of the interesting things that they noticed is that when a plague swept through a town and the town people knew, I need to get out of town, they would run. But the Christians didn't. The Christians would stay behind and take care of the sick, often putting their own lives on the line to do that. And so this, is the, this, this letter is being written about the year 50, okay? It's going out to new believers who at this point in time start to do what they're being told to do by God. Isn't that wonderful? That, that's how they began to change the culture. They began to change their world simply by doing that as well. Now, here's the beauty about God. He doesn't only tell us what to do. He tells us how to do it. And here's another biblical principle. When you study the Bible, you always ask, what did it mean to the very first believers? Then you ask, where does it fit in the rest of the New Testament? Where does it fit in the rest of the Bible? He doesn't speak about the Holy Spirit here. It's not his, his point is to focus us on the Scriptures. But it's the power of the Holy Spirit using the Scriptures that enables us to do what God has called us to do. You guys with me there? Interesting thing is Jesus is called in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. Isn't that interesting? There's a direct connection between Jesus Christ and the Scriptures. And, the, and that's why the writer to the Hebrews says, this is not just a book. This thing throbs with the life of God. And so the Word of God, Jesus, and the written Word are so directly connected that when you read the Bible, it's Jesus speaking to you. Put that in mind, okay? So whenever you're reading this, Jesus, the Lord who died for you, who loves you, is speaking to you through this, the pages of this book. 
and the Spirit of God is the one who wrote it. So James's, James's focus right now is on how the Word of God changes us, transforms us. And so watch what he says to us to do. Okay, here's what he says. The Word of God not only tells us what to do, it empowers us to live on the highest moral plane. He says, therefore, get rid of moral filth, all moral filth, and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Now, the word save there is describing salvation as a whole picture. Salvation happens the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. The, for, for, that we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God so that no man can boast. We're saved the moment we believe in Jesus Christ for eternity. If you've never believed in Jesus, don't waste another day of your life. God's got a wonderful life for you planned. Don't waste another day. If you've never yet believed in Jesus Christ, do it today, okay? But the Bible also says that ultimately when we die or Jesus returns, we will be completely saved then. In the meantime, we live in a body that likes to sin. And right now we are being saved. And so when he says, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you, He's talking about this plus this. But his letter is going to become part of what we ultimately call the New Testament. So this is a Greek New Testament. And as Pete James is writing this, he has no idea that one day his letter is going to be included among the, 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 the letters and books that are circulated all over the world. Let me I've got to tell you the story, okay? I'm sorry, you're just going to have to listen because it's so exciting. From that letter onward, over the next 50 years, there were Gospels being written. The Gospels were descriptions of the life of Jesus Christ. And as those Gospels were written, people read them and went, oh, I need a copy. And so they would make a copy. By the way, writing a Gospel would have taken weeks. They didn't have computers. <laughs> Do it all with spell check and everything like that. The writing of a gospel would have take, taken weeks or months as they sat down and they wrote carefully, thoughtfully, what those gospel writers wanted to do. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you haven't read the Bible yet, start there because that gives you your introduction to the whole big picture. It would take weeks or months. We don't know exactly how long, but there are thousands of letters in these, in these writings. To make a copy, if you wanted to make a copy of it in those days, you would have to give up days, weeks, months, depending how long one of these, one of these things were. But here's what's interesting. No other religion did that. No other religion circulated its texts. They had texts, many of them, but it was only for the, the priests to go and consult but the ordinary person never read them. But Christianity began to produce texts, gospels. Letters of Paul, very quickly, the letters of Paul became identified by God's people as, this is God speaking. We need a copy. We need to make a copy of a copy, of a copy, of a copy, of a copy. That's how we get the New Testament. Thousands of copies were made. No religion on earth did that. Christianity did they began to read passages and read the, the Gospels. They read the letters. They read the book of Acts. They read the, eventually, the book of Revelation was the final one that was written about AD 90. They, they read, and as they read these things, they knew God was speaking through them. And so they began to make copies and circulate copies and, and get their own copies in, in the churches. By the way, in the churches those days, most people were literate. 
And you probably had one person in each church who could read. And then they would read the scriptures and perhaps explain the scriptures as they're doing it. <laughs> Isn't that funny? We're still doing what they did 2,000 years ago where we read the scriptures and explain them as we go. Interesting thing came about. Notice these are called codexes. In those days, most things were done on scrolls and, and, and sent around and copied as scrolls. But what happened with the church is the church began to make codexes, which is like this, individual sheets. And they began to do it. We, we, we figure out, why would they do that? Why would they suddenly come up with the codex system? They did it because, and they only did it with the letters and the books and the Gospels that became part of the New Testament. Once they recognized something as being sacred, as being from God, they published them in a codex form. Isn't that cool? So that they could highlight, this is Scripture. This is God speaking to us. And so, as he's speaking about this, he says, all right, now. And at this point in time, by the way, all they have is his letter. It's going to grow. But we have the whole thing. And so he says, therefore, get rid of all, all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. How do I do that? And humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. The word of God has got that power. That when you let it come down into your being, it begins to do the transformation from the inside out. The Spirit of God obviously is doing it, giving you the power to do it. But God begins to change the way we think. That's why all of us need to be reading the Bible for ourselves. Okay? Not just listening to other people speak about the Bible. Not just reading books about the Bible. Go to the Bible and understand this is God's powerful word. Here's what you're doing. is You're giving the Spirit of God the vocabulary to speak to you. And there are times when you're just, oh, God, I feel so far away from you. Oh, God, you've abandoned me. And, oh, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. Hmm. You know when I sit down and when I rise. Psalm 139. See? The passage of Scripture that God says, okay, Raymond, calm down. Listen to me. There are times when I go, oh, man, where is my God? And Psalm 42 and 43 comes to me and he says, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why so restless within me? Put your hope in God, because I will yet praise Him. Isn't that cool? You give the Spirit of God the vocabulary that He can now talk to you. And it's living and powerful. Changes you from the inside out. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you. Why does He say humbly? Because it means I have to be teachable. Means I have to go, but, but God, but, but God. God says this. No, but, but God is this. This is how it's to be. One of the issues they had to face in those days was sex. Everybody, all the men were free to have sex anywhere. And then as they're reading the scriptures, it's saying, no, sex is limited to those who are married. And you could go, but, 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 but God, I love her. And God goes, oh, I didn't think of that. Hmm. there's a flaw in my law. Do you see what happens? Humbly accept the word of God planted in you. If God says no sex until you're married, okay. Then I'm going to trust him. I'm going to be teachable, and I'm going to trust that he knows what he's talking about because he will implant it inside of me. And then he says, but now listen. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, 
forgive me, ladies, but there's something really interesting in verse 23. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a male who looks at his face in the mirror. That's the word there. It's not someone. It's the Greek word andri, which means a male. And it's not anthropos, which means male or female. It says andri is like a male who looks at himself in the mirror. Now, you see, I know this is sexist, but it's true. When a woman looks in the mirror, she can see a gray hair when it's still deep inside her skull. <laughs> when a woman looks in the mirror, she can see a flaw that is still five miles below the surface. She can see it coming. Think about it. How often have you been in a restaurant and a man has pulled out his mirror and adjusted his lipstick? Males, he knew, like that. You look in the mirror and it's like, oh, I'm still here. Okay. And we move on and go from there. And by the way, the mirrors in those days were not mirrors like we have. It was polished metal. So keep that in mind here just a moment. James is saying one of the problems that you as Jewish people have, and all Christians are going to struggle with it, is that we look into the Word of God and immediately forget it and walk away from it. We've got B-A-D-D, Biblical Attention Deficit Disorder. And he says, don't do that. When you come to the Word and, and God speaks to you, don't be like a person who looks in the mirror and just walks away, but rather instead, he says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now notice that. There are mirrors. You had to look intently into the mirror in those days to be able to see. And the word looks intently means to stoop down. And you had to stoop down to look into the mirrors in those days just to see what flaws were on you. You had to go really close to the mirror. And he says, and so what we should do is we should go to this book and we should look intently, bow our heads over it, spend time in here. If you don't understand everything, welcome to the club, okay? We've got master's degrees in theology and we read something and go, what? Okay? If you don't understand something, just keep on reading. Just, just keep going. Because there's lots of stuff in here that's kind of hard. But there are answers to all the questions. But still, look intently and keep on doing it. Make it a habit of your life that you go to the Scriptures. So, for example, some people, first thing in the morning, will open God's Word and just read. Just let God speak to you at the beginning of the day. My habit is the end of the day. I don't know why, but that for me is when I want to open the Word. And before I go to sleep, I want God to speak to me. <laughs> it probably helps with a lot of my nightmares, but still, I, I want to hear God speak to me. He says, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues it, not forgetting what they've heard, they will be blessed in what they do. You want to be blessed. Because what happens is your life changes. Your life becomes better. Your life is transformed. You will be blessed, and blessed is kind of like if you take all the most wonderful things God could possibly give to us and sum them up, it's in that word bless. Blessed. You will be blessed, and not only will you be blessed, but you will bless the culture around you. Because what we learn from this is that the Word of God changes the culture through those who implant it and who do what it says. You probably remember the story of the mutiny on the bounty where soldiers, uh, soldiers, sailors, rebelled against their captain, put him and a few of his, his guys on a ship, and, uh, and a, on a small boat, and sent them away and took over control of the bounty. This was in Tahiti. 
And they then settled on, a, on an island called, what was it called? Okay, Pitcairn. They went to an island called Pitcairn and they burnt the, the ships. So now they were stuck here. They had to live here. The people who landed there were nine British soldiers, six Tahitian men, and ten women. One of them figured out how to make alcohol and wrecked their society until all of the men but one had died. All of the British men but one had died. One of them found a trunk that had been brought off of the boats, and in it he found a Bible. And he began to read the Bible. A couple of decades later, the United States ship Topaz visited the island, and they found a thriving and prosperous community without liquor, without a jail, without a crime, and even without an insane, insane asylum. The Bible had changed that entire island. And the Bible changed our world. If the Bible had not, if, if the early Christians had not done what God called them to do, had they not held on to the gospel and kept going, the world would not have been changed. But now here's the scary thing to be aware of, okay? Satan doesn't want that gospel preached. He doesn't want this word taught. And so what you find is that throughout history, the church has done this. Where we, we take our theology and we take our polity and we take our practices and we bury the gospel. I grew up in a church where I never heard the gospel. What were they doing every Sunday? I don't know. Preaching the Reader's Digest. I have no idea what in the world they did on Sundays. But they buried the gospel. Many of us grew up in churches like that too, where you never heard the gospel. You never heard explained who Jesus is and what he did. And so one of the things that we as a church are, are going to battle to do is to make sure that we make sure the gospel is presented, that we clearly explain it. And the gospel always leads us to Jesus. So you've got to challenge Tony and me and everyone else who preaches. Take me to Jesus. Don't tell me what to do. Take me to Jesus. You can tell me what to do if you tell me how to do it. Take me to Jesus. And that's what the gospel does. It takes us all the way there. So, how do we go to Jesus today? Very simple. Understand that this written word is the living word speaking to us. And any time we open the words, the book of the, 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 the Bible, understand that Jesus is now the one talking to you. The Jesus who gave his life for you. The Jesus who loves you infinitely, and the Jesus who wants to turn you into the best version of you you could possibly be, and the Jesus who wants to change the world through you. The first generation of believers did it, and they changed, the literal, literally changed the world. We can too. Isn't that a great challenge to have? Isn't that a great opportunity? Your life is not just, eh, come live, be hatched, matched, and dispatched, and and, and you get stuck in the ground, and they, oh, that's what it was all about. No! We've got the capacity to change our world and change our nation if we simply let the Word of God come into us and change us from the inside out. Let's pray together. Father God, I know that when I talk about us having B-A-D-D, -D, oh, 